Hello, this is R.J. Deacon reading the Supreme Court of the United States opinion syllabus in Collins v. Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, argued December 9, 2020, decided June 23, 2021. If you'd like to support the podcast, there's a PayPal link in the show notes. When the national housing bubble burst in 2008, the Federal National Mortgage Association, Fannie Mae, and the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, Freddie Mac, two of the nation's leading sources of mortgage financing, suffered significant losses that many feared would imperil the national economy. To address that concern, Congress enacted the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, Recovery Act, which, among other things, created the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, an independent agency tasked with regulating the companies and, if necessary, stepping in as their conservator or receiver. See uh, 12 U.S.C. section 4501 at SEC. At the head of the agency, Congress installed a single director, removable by the president only for cause, sections 4512A and B2. Soon after the FHFA's creation, the director placed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into conservatorship and negotiated agreements for the companies with the Department of the Treasury. Under those agreements, Treasury committed to providing each company with up to $100 billion in capital and in exchange received, among other things, senior preferred shares and quarterly fixed-rate dividends. In the years that followed, the agency agreed to a number of amendments, the third of which replaced the fixed-rate dividend formula with a variable one that required the companies to make quarterly payments consisting of their entire net worth minus a small specified capital reserve. A group of the company's shareholders challenged the third amendment on both statutory grounds that the FHFA exceeded its authority as a conservator under the Recovery Act by agreeing to the new variable dividend formula and constitutional grounds that the FHFA's structure violates the separation of powers because the agency is led by a single director removable by the president only for cause. The district court dismissed the statutory claim and granted summary judgment in the FHFA's favor on the constitutional claim. The Fifth Circuit reversed the district court's dismissal of the statutory claim, held that the FHFA's structure violates the separation of powers, and concluded that the appropriate remedy for the constitutional violation was to sever the removal restriction from the rest of the Recovery Act, but not to vacate and set aside the Third Amendment. Um, the Supreme Court held... This is going to be a long one. Affirmed in part, reversed in part, vacated in part, and remanded. Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court. The shareholder statutory claim must be dismissed. The anti-injunction clause of the Recovery Act provides that unless review is specifically authorized by one of its provisions or is requested by the director, no court may take any action to restrain or affect the exercise of powers or functions of the agency as a conservator or a receiver, section 4617F, where, as here, the FHFA's challenged actions did not exceed its powers or functions as a conservator, relief is prohibited.
the Recovery Act grants the FHFA expansive authority in its role as a conservator and permits the agency to act in what it determines is in the best interests of the regulated entity or the agency. Section 4617B2 Cap JII. So, when the FHFA acts as a conservator, it may aim to rehabilitate the regulated entity in a way that, while not in the best interests of the regulated entity, is beneficial to the agency and, by extension, the public it serves. This feature of an FHFA conservatorship is fatal to the shareholder's statutory claim. The Third Amendment was adopted at a time when the companies had repeatedly been able to make their fixed quarterly dividend payments without drawing on the Treasury's capital commitment. If things had proceeded as they had in the past, there was a possibility that the companies would have consumed some or all of the remaining capital commitment in order to pay their dividend obligations. The Third Amendment's variable dividend formula eliminated that risk and in turn ensured that all of the Treasury's capital was available to backstop the company's operations during difficult quarters. Although the Third Amendment required the companies to relinquish nearly all of their net worth, the FHFA could have reasonably concluded that this course of action was in the best interest of members of the public who rely on a stable secondary mortgage market. The shareholders argue that the Third Amendment did not actually serve the best interests of the FHFA or the public, because it did not further the asserted objective of protecting Treasury's capital commitment. First, they claim that the FHFA agreed to the amendment at a time when the companies were on the precipice of a financial uptick, which would have allowed them to pay their cash dividends and build up capital buffers to absorb future losses. Thus, the shareholders assert, sweeping all the company's earnings into Treasury increased rather than decrease the risk that the companies would make further draws and eventually deplete Treasury's commitment. But the success of the strategy that the shareholders tout was dependent on speculative projections about future earnings, and recent experience had given the FHFA reasons for caution. The nature of the conservatorship authorized by the Recovery Act permitted the agency to reject the shareholders' suggested strategy in favor of one that the agency reasonably viewed as more certain to ensure market stability. Second, the shareholders claimed that the FHFA could have protected Treasury's capital commitment by ordering the companies to pay the dividends in kind rather than in cash. This argument rests on a misunderstanding of the agreement between the companies and the Treasury. Paying Treasury in kind would not have satisfied the cash dividend obligation. It would only have delayed that obligation, as well as the risk that the company's cash dividend obligation would consume Treasury's capital commitment. Choosing to forego this option in favor of one that eliminated the risk entirely was not in excess of the FHFA's authority as conservator. Finally, the shareholders argue that because the Third Amendment left the companies unable to build capital reserves and exit conservatorship, it is best viewed as a step towards liquidation, which the FHFA lacked the authority to take without first placing the companies in receivership. This characterization is inaccurate. Nothing about the Third Amendment precluded the companies from operating at full steam in the marketplace, and all available evidence suggests that they did. The companies were not in the process of winding down their affairs. Uh, 
Part 2. The Recovery Act's restriction on the President's power to remove the FHFA Director, 12 U.S.C. Section 4512b2, is unconstitutional. The threshold issues raised in the lower court or by federal parties and appointed amicus do not bar a decision on the merits of the shareholder's constitutional claim. The shareholders have standing to bring their constitutional claim. See Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife. First, the shareholders assert that the FHFA transferred the value of their property rights in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to Treasury, and that sort of pocketbook injury is a prototypical form of injury in fact. See Seiswicki versus Jevic Holding. Second, the shareholders' injury is traceable to the FHFA's adoption and implementation of the Third Amendment, which is responsible for the variable dividend formula. For purposes of traceability, the relevant inquiry is whether the plaintiff's injury can be traced to allegedly unlawful conduct of the defendant, not to the provision of law that is challenged. That's uh, Allen versus Wright. Finally, a decision in the shareholder's favor could easily lead to the award of at least some of the relief that the shareholders seek. The shareholder's constitutional claim is not moot. After oral argument was held in this case, the FHFA and Treasury agreed to amend the stock purchasing agreements for a fourth time. That amendment eliminated the variable dividend formula that caused the shareholder's injury. As a result, the shareholders no longer have any ground for prospective relief, but they remain in, retain an interest in the retrospective relief they have requested. That interest saves their constitutional claim from mootness. The shareholders' constitutional claim is not barred by the Recovery Act's succession clause. That's uh, Section 4617B2 Cap AI. That clause affects only a limited transfer of the stockholders' rights namely the rights they hold with respect to the regulated entity and its assets. Here, by contrast, the shareholders assert a right that they hold in common with all other citizens who have standing to challenge the removal restriction. The succession clause, therefore, does not transfer to the FHFA the constitutional right at issue. The shareholders' constitutional challenge can proceed even though the FHFA was led by an acting director as opposed to a Senate-confirmed director. At the time, the Third Amendment was adopted. The harm allegedly caused by the Third Amendment did not come to an end during the tenure of the acting director, who was in office when the amendment was adopted. Rather, that harm is alleged to have continued after the acting director was replaced by a succession of confirmed directors, and it appears that any one of those officers could have renegotiated the company's dividend formula with the Treasury. Because confirmed directors choose to continue implementing the Third Amendment while insulated from a plenary presidential control, or from plenary presidential control, the survival of the shareholders' constitutional claim does not depend on the answer to the question whether the Recovery Act restricted the removal of an acting director. The answer to that question could, however, have a bearing on the scope of relief that may be awarded to the shareholders. If the statute does not restrict the removal of an acting director, any harm resulting from actions taken under an acting director would not be attributable to a constitutional violation. 
only harm caused by a confirmed director's implementation of the Third Amendment could then provide a basis for relief. In the Recovery Act, Congress expressly restricted the president's power to remove a confirmed director, but said nothing of the kind with respect to an acting director. When a statute does not limit the president's power to remove an agency head, the court generally presumes that the officer serves at the president's pleasure. See uh, Shirtleff versus United States. Seeing no grounds for departing from that presumption here, the court holds that the Recovery Act's removal restriction does not extend to an acting director and proceeds to the merits of the shareholder's constitutional argument. The Recovery Act's four-cause restriction on the president's removal authority violates the separation of powers. In Celia Law v. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the court held that Congress could not limit the president's power to remove the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, to instances of inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. In so holding, the court observed that the CFPB, an independent agency led by a single director, lacks a foundation in historical practice and clashes with the constitutional structure by concentrating power in a unilateral actor insulated from presidential control. A straightforward application of Celia Law's reasoning dictates the result here. The FHFA, like the CFPB, is an agency led by a single director, and the Recovery Act, like the Dodd-Frank Act, restricts the president's removal power. The distinctions court-appointed amicus draws between the FHFA and the CFPB are insufficient to justify a different result. First, amicus argues that the that Congress should have greater leeway to restrict the president's power to remove the FHFA director because the FHFA's authority is more limited than that of the CFPB. But the nature and breadth of an agency authority is not dispositive in determining whether Congress may limit the president's power to remove its head. Moreover, the test that Amicus proposes would lead to severe practical problems. Courts are not well suited to weigh the relative importance of the regulatory and enforcement authority of disparate agencies. Second, Amicus contends that Congress may restrict the removal of the FHFA director because when the agency steps into the shoes of a regulated entity as its conservator or receiver, it takes on the status of a private party and thus does not wield executive power. But the agency does not always act in such a capacity. Even when it does, the agency must implement a federal statute and may exercise powers that differ critically from those of most conservators and receivers. Third, Amicus asserts that the FHFA's structure does not violate the separation of powers because the entities it regulates are government-sponsored enterprises that have federal charters, serve public objectives, and receive special privileges. This argument fails because the president's removal power serves important purposes, regardless of whether the agency in question affects ordinary Americans by directly regulating them or by taking actions that have a profound but indirect effect on their lives. Finally, Amicus contends that there is no constitutional problem in this case because the Recovery Act offers only modest tenure protection. But the Constitution prohibits even modest restrictions 
on the president's power to remove the head of an agency with a single top officer. The shareholders seek an order setting aside the Third Amendment and requiring that all dividend payments be made pursuant to that amendment, or all dividend payments made pursuant to that amendment be returned to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. In support of this request, they contend that the Third Amendment was adopted and implemented by officers who lacked constitutional authority and that their actions were therefore void ab initito. This argument is neither logical nor supported by precedent. All of the officers who headed the FHFA during the time in question were properly appointed. There is no basis for concluding that any head of the FHFA lacked the authority to carry out the functions of the office or that actions taken by the FHFA in retaliation or in relation to the Third Amendment are void. That does not necessarily mean, however, that the shareholders have no entitlement to retrospective relief. Although an unconstitutional provision is never really part of the body of governing laws, it is still possible for an unconstitutional provision to inflict compensable harm. The possibility that the unconstitutional restriction on the president's power to remove a director of the FHFA could have such an effect cannot be ruled out. The party's arguments on this point should be resolved in the first instance by the lower courts. The decision is affirmed in part, reversed in part, vacated in part, and remanded. Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined in full, in which Justices Kagan and Breyer joined as to all but parts, part 3B, in which Justice Gorsuch joined as to all but part 3C, and in which Justice Sotomayor joined as to parts 1, 2, and 3C. Uh, Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion, Justice Kagus, Kagan filed a opinion concurring in part, and concurring in the judgment, in which Justices Breyer and Sotomayor joined as to part 2. Justice Gorsuch filed an opinion concurring in part, Justice Sotomayor filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part, in which Justice Breyer joined. Um, enough of those. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, I can be reached at RhodesScholar80 at gmail.com. That's R-O-A-D-S, like the truck driving roads, and the number 80. If you'd like to support me, that would be the PayPal link in the show notes or Patreon, or you can just get a hold of me and I'll tell you how to do that.